And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Mark Marquez is back on a MotoGP bike. Testing recently in Misano has been the first time he's been on a big bike since Mugello in early June, some 14 weeks ago. He blasted around the Adriatic circuit over a two-day test doing about 100 laps. He said, I only did two weeks gym and two days on a bike, then got straight onto a MotoGP bike. So, he said, the timing is quite tight, but there's still a long way to go. He continued, he said, I didn't enjoy the first run because the bikes are too fast. But from that point, I started to enjoy it a bit more. I'm still riding by instinct. And that's an important part of his quote. Continuing, he said, because after 100 days, you're riding like this. You don't know how you're doing. But he said, the lap time wasn't bad. Well, you're right, Mark. Your lap time was very good. In fact, it was faster than all the other Honda riders. We'll discuss in this episode what Honda have to do to get themselves out of the hole they're in with Marquez back on a bike. With me, Toby Moody, Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunshi chatting it through. And then later on, we will answer some of your questions that you have sent in to us. Do continue to send your questions in, though with a voice memo to podcasts at the-race.com. Simon, you were trackside there when Mark got back on the big bike. He did half a day on the first day of the test and then a slightly longer day on day two. But the big question is, when might he be back on a bike during a Grand Prix weekend? Well, as we record this on Tuesday morning, uh, the biggest news of the last few days regarding Marquez is that it's now being confirmed provisionally that he'll be in the press conference on two days' time at Motherland Aragon, which it is still very provisional, but it's a good sign that they at least, at least MotoGP expect him to be back in action, even if Repsol Honda themselves aren't too sure yet. Um, but I don't think that comes as a real surprise based on what he was saying during that test and how many laps he did more than anything else, because he did, you know, like you say, over 100 laps, I think, um, 30 in the first day, 70 in the second day, which is roughly a race weekend's worth of distance. You know, it's it's the first time that he's done a full stint like that since before the surgery. Um, he said afterwards that the main decision would come not based on how the test had went, but on how he felt in the days after the test. And the fact that he's been back on a CBR 600 doing some training in the last few days is indicative of that going pretty well. So uh, he, I wouldn't be surprised if he's back in Aragon. He's not going to come back and try and win the race. Um, he's already suggested that, that basically the point of coming back for the last half of the season, the final six races is that the best way to get fit for riding a MotoGP bike is to ride a MotoGP bike. So essentially it's five weekends or six weekends of physiotherapy at 200 miles an hour. Just to put this into context, uh, Mark was informed in early June that he had the bone in his arm had reset 34 degrees incorrectly. So he wasn't holding onto the motorcycle straight and correct. So he went to America, they reset the arm, and that has taken the time. And Val, it's it's very indicative what we've seen over the last 14 weeks with his recovery. It's absolutely the correct way to do things rather than the four days he had over two and a half years ago now, two and a bit years ago, from when he fell off at Jerez in July 2020. All right, it's the correct way, obviously, but I, I think it is it is important to always caveat that with the fact that it's a different decision to make. Mark Marquez is not entitled contention in 2022. There is 
no reason for him to hurry a return any sooner than he's completely ready. I guess he won't be completely ready, but you know, as ready as he's going to get without having ridden a MotoGP bike. Obviously, the 2020 thing was caused by a desperation to minimize the damage to his title campaign, which is not a thing that exists right now. So I think if we're, I'm still thinking that if we want to see just how well the lessons of what happened there were learned, we'd have to see basically a similar situation where Mark maybe has to miss a race or two of a season in which he's in title contention. And I, I would not wish that kind of injury on him. So in a sense, I hope we do not find out. Yeah. Uh, Simon, do you think that he tested anything or he just had a, a really simple basic machine underneath him? Was any word given? Yeah, he, he admitted that he did a bit of testing, um, mainly on aerodynamic stuff, but was very much sort of suggesting that he didn't really, he wasn't fast enough to to really know what he was doing with it. He was just kind of riding around and um, not worrying about the new stuff that they were giving him. I mean, that's what he said anyway. I don't for a minute believe that was entirely the case because it's Mark Marquez. Um, I'm sure that there was still some feedback, but it certainly wasn't the sort of test that, say, Yamaha had in Misano, where there was a brand new 2023 bike to try out and a lot of work to be done on it. Um, Honda certainly weren't at that level. So, Simon, do you think that because of the way Marquez approached this test, do you think there's not much we can read into him being quicker than the other Hondas there for it? I don't think so because of the situation that the other Hondas find themselves in as much as anything. Like, we know that Paul Espargaro is getting nothing in terms of new components at this point because he's out in a few races. The same applies to Alex Marquez. And I think if Takenakagami is testing new stuff, it's because they're looking at stuff that's much further down the line than necessarily something that they're going to have, you know, ready to go racing with anytime soon. Because I think now increasingly we're going to see that Nakagami's job becomes that of a a kind of on-track tester. Well, Taka Nakagami, only about an hour ago, has been confirmed as continuing with the LCR Honda squad into 2023. Little bit of a surprise, that, for me. You? Uh, well, not really, because I think somebody broke it a little bit earlier. That's the way the wind was blowing. I think it was, like, maybe a few weeks ago. And it's... I don't know if it's a surprise, because ultimately Taka's not had a very... A very good season. I would say he's had a a pretty bad one, like all the Honda riders. But even as of late, like you'd be a little bit surprised, for instance, to see that I think Alex Marquez has sort of emerged as the four man at Honda, whereas Taka has retreated a bit back. While normally would maybe, given how how given that Paul is on the way out, you'd probably expect Taka to be Honda's standard bearer right now, and it's it's not happening right this second. But obviously the fact he's staying i don't think has so much to do with with his actual performance i would suspect it has more to do with one of the two sides in the honda agora relationship Iagura, not being super keen on placing a rookie on a bike that remains half-baked i guess fair comment i so agora has has repeatedly said that he wasn't ready for the move up yet and that he he wasn't thinking about it which i don't for a minute think is true um i think that agura is just a a very closed book whenever it comes to dealing with writers anyway and i think you can't really read too much into his statements because if you actually listen exactly to what he said he never said he wasn't interested in going to moto gp next year it was always at this moment or while i'm fighting for the title in moto 2 so it was always a bit vague anyway so um i don't think that necessarily he wasn't ready to move up but i think more than anything what honda need right now is a bit of consistency in their lineup and really taka is going to be the only consistent part of their lineup going forward now um espagaro is out Alex Marquez is out. Mark Marquez essentially has been out for the best part of three years. Um, you know, his last full season was 2019. Um, so I think, yeah, what Honda are doing is keeping someone who knows the bike as a benchmark. Yeah, I don't I don't buy the Agora not ready thing at all either. Because that's 
First of all, that's not just that's not something writers mean when they say it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Exactly. But but secondly, in a especially in the modern MotoGP world where we've seen Joan Mir step up after one fairly middling season in Moto Two and become Moto MotoGP champion two seasons later. I don't I just I can't see much of a mindset going on among the intermediate class of well, I better wait for the perfect moment. You you get a spot MotoGP, you grab it, unless that spot is on a half-baked Honda that you're not sure riding would do much good for you. I mean, I, I'd still put him on there because there's just there's no reason to delay a MotoGP move when when you've had like five seasons on the Grand Prix, on the Grand Prix uh, ladder. I don't see much of a reason, even if the bike's not very good, that MotoGP prep, I think, is more valuable than just riding a, a Calyx for another season. You never know with what we've seen with, with Quattararo getting into the big class and what we saw with Marquez getting into the big class. Uh, Ayagura might be sorted for this Honda, just as Mark is not a million miles away with it. You know, Even though, as Simon Corrali says, he's been absent for three years, when he jumps on it, he has still some, won some Grand Prix. So uh, you never know. But he's playing uber corporate. I get that. He's got time on his side and he will be in MotoGP one day and we can relish the moment that he is. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's been some sort of a deal done where Agura is basically guaranteed the bike in 2024. Yeah. Um, on the basis of once the problems are fixed, that's the right time for him. And then Nakagami becomes somewhat redundant. Um, and if you're Honda, you have to be thinking, we will fix these problems because Honda don't do failure. Um, so, yeah, the, you know, Ogura will stay as part of the Honda family and there will be some sort of a long-term plan that still remains in place. And, you know, you've got to look at it from a Japanese point of view. They've been champions in 125, they've been champions in 250, but they still want to win uh, the big class. They they haven't quite done that as a nation, uh, as a rider's title. And one day they will, and they've got to molly-cuddle the guy until he, until he gets there, until he gets there. Um... Elsewhere, up and down the pit lane at Mizano during the two-day test, you touched on it a moment ago, the, the, the positivity that has and the speed that has come out of the works Yamaha garage. Wow, I should think that Fabio Quattararo slept rather well that night. They have delivered everything he's been asking for, which is really impressive because I didn't think they'd be able to do that and still keep the balance of the bike as well as it was, but it very much seems like... They've brought a faster bike that still goes around corners really quickly um, and will be competitive enough. You know, they, they don't need a bike that's Ducati fast. They need a bike that's like Suzuki 2022 fast, something that just doesn't get blitzed every time they get onto a straight and that can maybe make the occasional slipstream pass on an Aprilia. That's what they really need. Uh, they haven't had that for a very long time, but based on the noise that Quattararo's making it seems like yeah they've they've got somewhere with it and obviously they were the only manufacturer really running a new engine extensively at that test Ducati were still nowhere near bringing a new engine from what they're saying but the good news coming out of the Ducati camp for Quattararo is that they seem to be trying to beat Yamaha at their own game and making a bike that's faster in the corners and they're not necessarily expecting something that's going to be I'm a lot faster for next year. Um, so all in all, I would imagine that Quattararo has left that test in the best mood that he's left maybe any test in since he stepped up into the factory team. That That's how positive he was. It's clearly a good test, but uh, if I'm to pour some salt on it, I guess, uh, testing, in testing, you... You don't often don't see the the teething problems. I think that that has happened with Ducati with this year's bike a little bit, and in particular with with Suzuki. Obviously, I think Suzuki twenty twenty two is a is a cautionary tale. That bike is more powerful, and yet it is, I think, demonstrably worse. Like just no question about it. It has not. It has been a disappointment, and I think more power is good. And the initial feedback that it hasn't compromised the cornering is very good. But I think that's. That's all we can take it as right now is initial feedback because they've only had a a grippy post-race test to, to explore it in. 
And there's, there's just always teething problems in modern MotoGP when you bring something majorly new. And look at, look at Honda. Honda looked great in testing this year. Now it's, I'm not gonna use any words here that are gonna get slapped us with an explicit rating, but it's not very good. So I guess it's a question of, for me, 2023 now becomes a question of how quickly those teething problems are ironed out. Because if it is as good as it looks, then, then MotoGP, non-Yamaha bits of MotoGP are in serious trouble. The the one caveat, just to pick up on what you said, Val, that is worth mentioning is, Hareth, uh, sorry, Mizano was a grippy circuit anyway. Yeah. And it had five days of perfect rubber laid down on it, essentially, by the end of it. And there was guys saying, like, I can't believe lap 27 was as fast as lap one. It felt like a new tire at the end of a race simulation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was pretty much ideal conditions. Uh, and that will have masked some of the problems. Um, that will have hidden some of the issues. And this is something that we had last year as well, where we, we tested things at super grippy, super perfect tracks. And then got to Europe and discovered that they weren't working because they'd been hidden by, you know, mainly, mainly it's a symptom of Hareth testing at the end of the year because Hareth at the end of the year is so perfect. Um, the good news, I guess, for Yamaha is that we have another test before the winter break at Valencia, which is likely to be quite a bit cooler, quite a bit greasier, even if it is post-race weekend as well. It'll, you know... It always rains at Valencia at some point in mid-November. Um, and that might be a good thing for them to give them a chance to test it out in, in worse conditions and see what they can learn from that too. I mean, also just outside of 23 and 3, I think this could have a pretty decent knock-on on their current campaign just because it'll allow Fabio Quartararo to approach this current title fight as a... Well, look, if it doesn't happen, if Banyai catches and overtakes me or whatever... I'll still have 2023 and 2024 by the sounds of it because they are bringing improvements. Whereas before he would, he could have been forgiven for thinking, well, if if I can't win it this year, am I going to be 20 kilometers an hour down on the straights next year? Am I just going to finish sixth, seventh every race? Is this what awaits me? I think that subconsciously, I expect that will help. It would help me a lot if I was in his shoes. I don't know if that's the way he thinks about it, but given the amount of i wouldn't call it fear but given the amount of clear anxiety that he has expressed over the current yamaha this will help at least take some of that edge off and it might help him perform better the the biggest takeaway from this test for me is that yamaha signed an extension to quadraro's deal on the promise that they would bring big shake up to how their engine development program worked it's their first test post that and they've done exactly what they said and that's going to make quarter hour very very happy and at the end of the day a happy writer is a fast writer that is step one in the whole process nothing worse than a than a broken promise exactly you know you've just negotiated a you never want to make your rider feel like they've committed to something they shouldn't have and right now, Quartararo will not be feeling that way, which is just really nice. It isn't even just living up to the promises they made. It's doing it even quicker than I think anyone would have expected, including Quartararo. You know, they've they've really snapped this into place. It's proper impressive, isn't it? Uh, elsewhere, up and down the pit lane at Suzuki, Juan Mir, who didn't ride at Mizano MotoGP weekend, uh, we had uh, Kazuki Watanabe riding the bike during the Grand Prix. But gender- then during the test, the Moto E champion, Swiss Dominique Agata, rode the bike. He's got a World Supersport Championship to look after as well at this back end of 2022. He was at Manucourt just only a couple of days ago. Uh, might he be in a chance of riding at Aragon? What's the latest? Now, it sounds like, going off Spanish media right now from what I read just today, sounds like Juan will go to Aragon and try to ride and... Obviously, if you can't do that, then you would presume, based on what you've seen in the test, Domi Agarter will step in because he looked quick enough. Certainly, he looked on pace. He will not be a problem. There will be no 100%, 105% doubt of whether or not he can make the, the cutoff time. But it sounds like Juan will, will come, which I don't really get, but okay. I, I mean, Val's, Val's log-lived uh, 
opposition to Mir continuing to write a Suzuki is well documented. Um, I get why he's going to try to go because at the end of the day, it's Aragon. It's a two and a half hour drive from home. And we're going into a really crazy block of races where I'd want to know I was fit before I got in a plane to Japan and onto Thailand and, and blah, blah, blah. So I think he'll go to make sure that he's okay for those races or at least to, to measure his where his return is. Um, does Suzuki really care if he does FP1 and FP2 and then doesn't do the rest of the weekend at this point? Don't really think so. Will they stick Agata in if that is the case? I don't really know. Um, I don't see any harm in it. Like you say, Val, he, he was quick. He was um, he did 33 laps over four runs with two sets of tyres and he was immediately faster than Watanabe was all weekend. So he'll, you know, he, he'll, if he has to race the bike, even if he has to race the bike without doing FP3, one and FP2 on Friday, if he jumps in on Saturday morning like he's allowed to, then he'll qualify and he'll, you know, probably finish last but not be lapped and not embarrass himself for Suzuki. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, Agriture was a fairly decent Moto2 rider for, for a very long time. So, yeah, no real surprise there. And he's it's pretty good. One of only a handful of people to win a Moto2 race in a suitor, apart from Mark Marquez. There you go. But... I just going back to your point about my continued opposition to Jean riding the Suzuki. Now he still has a contract, and I don't know what his doctors are telling him. Maybe they're telling him the injury has not only healed but made him better, and he's now I don't know an augmented <laughs> Terminator or something. But as somebody who happens to follow a fair few other sports, normally when you know there's a trade coming soon and you're going somewhere else, you if you're not fighting for anything you take extra time with injuries. You shut yourself down as much as you can and you protect yourself as an asset, if that makes any sense. I guess there's a chance John just doesn't think that way, in which case, I guess on, on the one hand, credit to him. He's clearly a, a wonderful team player and it's clear his Suzuki crew loves him a whole, whole lot. But on the other hand, I don't get it, so. There's, there's two stories at play here. One of them is what you touched on, Val. A racer just wants to race. He wants to prove to himself. Uh, I'm sh think suspect is the correct wording that if a racer doesn't race for a certain number of Grand Prix, he doesn't get paid. Secondly, if he can't do FP2 because FP1 is rubbish and they have to put someone else on the bike, in the greatest of, of respect to Suzuki and Livio Supo's team principal, they don't really care. All they need is two bikes on the grid to satisfy their contract to fulfil the grid. And if it's not quite thee and me on the bike, but somebody vaguely capable, they satisfy the words of their contract. Sad and as boring as that sounds, but they have to fulfil the deal that they've got with Erta and Dorna. So, yeah, necessary evil. I, I wouldn't even say it's sad. I wouldn't even say it's sad. I, I'm, I'm okay with Agritur getting a motor. So do I. I like it when people get And you never know. Debuts. You never know. Look it's what happened nice. in Formula 1 at Monza last weekend. What a little yeah. fairy tale. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, so, yeah, we shall see. We shall see. Okay, then. Well, that kind of wraps up where the Mizano testing got to and the positivity that emanated from the works factory Yamaha Garage. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. We've now got some questions from you, the listeners, that you've emailed into podcasts at the-race.com. Continue to send them in because we enjoy the variety that then spark the conversation between us three. So let's kick off with our first question this week. Hi guys, it's John C from North Wales here. Um, I've just ridden to work on my KTM and was reading um, the articles on your website about KTM and Miguel Oliveira uh, leaving uh, to join RNF Aprilia. And I was wondering, um, last year there was lots of talk about uh, Danny Pedrosa's input in the 2022 bike and how that was going to be a big step forward. There doesn't seem to have been any suggestion of that this year. So do you guys think that the 2023 bike is going to be a a step forward, whether in KTM or Gas Gas, uh, presuming they get the same bikes, um, or... Uh, or and is Danny Pedrosa's input perhaps not as um, beneficial as it might have been? It'd be interesting to hear what you've got to say. Thanks, John T. I uh, hope the ride on your bike was good as well and the weather was uh, was dry for you. Interesting question about Danny Pedrosa and his input into KTM. Um, I suppose, Simon, it's got a lot to do with the difference in testing and the lack of concessions that they have got in recent seasons now isn't it yeah that's well i'll start by saying that i've always been quite skeptical about the pedroza effect at ktm um he has always been held up as the the sort of the savior of the program because he came in and everything got faster but i'm genuinely not of the opinion that one person makes all that difference um, I just don't see it, especially one person who weighs 48 kilos and is like 152 centimeters. He's just too different from everyone else in MotoGP um, to, to have that much of an impact. Um, I think what we saw was maybe some fortuitous luck for him and that he joined the team as things were getting better and it all kind of came together. Um, but since then... It almost seems like there's still a mentality of KTM that they, they're continuing to work the way that they previously worked when they did have concessions and they could take the racers and go and try out new stuff with them and then turn up to the race weekend with that new stuff and it would make them faster. They're, they're still trying to do that, except now they don't have the ability to do tests with the racers. So the guys get everything thrown at them on a Friday morning and it tends to overload the whole development process. Um, I think... So from that perspective, I think that maybe the the one person that can have a biggest impact on KTM going forwards is maybe Paul Espargaro, because they're bringing in a seasoned veteran who knows the bike, who's been away from it long enough to see how it's changed, who hasn't been there for those two really tough years, and who can be their on-track tester the way that Cal Crutchlow was at Honda, the way that uh, Zarco is at Ducati and Miller was before him and Petrucci was before that they, they've got a real asset to use every weekend rather than an asset to use in private testing and that should be beneficial in the long run Yeah, basically unusually I'm 100% with, with Simon there who basically covered off all the same points that I would have made and often do make uh, it's a favourite pet theory of mine that yeah, KTM was on the rise and then it lost Paul and suddenly it wasn't on the rise anymore. But also I think, so the 21 bike wasn't very good, but wouldn't it would have been worked on during 2020 when they still had concessions, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I really, I, I also am not a huge believer in the, they've hired Pedrosa and he's, you know, he's dreamt up the perfect bike for him. 
theory. I mean, he'll help. He's one of the most experienced and clearly clever riders around. But yeah, I don't. I don't know that it's a lack of Pedrosa use or Pedrosa use or whatever that is going to be determining and how good the 23 bike is. And as to how good it actually will be, uh, shrug, big shrug. I don't know. Uh, KTM's, honestly, in all its time in MotoGP, I found its peaks and valleys really quite hard to follow and understand. So I predicting anything for 23. Could be a rocket ship that goes 400 kilometers per hour. Could be, could be a one-wheeled monstrosity. I have no idea. It, it's also KTM. It could be a 400 kilometer an hour rocket for the first four races, then become a one-wheeled monstrosity for six races, and then go back to winning races again because that has been their development program. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's not easy. It's not easy, is it? But I, uh, Pedroza, I don't want to knock him, but and because it, it's not his fault. But as you say, Simon, he's uh, he's under 50 kilos, and as I used to see on the commentary, there's a mate of mine who lives about a mile away who's a friend I drink with in the pub and uh, he has a German Shepherd who weighs more than Danny Pedrosa you know uh, <laughs> that's the line that I used to use on the commentary when he was on a Repsol Honda and that was yes a bit of jovial fun a bit of a smile made Val smile but what can you learn from somebody so small when you've then got a Miguel Oliveira who is so much bigger, etc., etc., etc. So, um, are you are you suggesting, Toby, that the solution to all of KTM's problems is hiring a German Shepherd? <laughs> German Shepherd? No, far from it. I, I was I was going to say, shame the German Shepherd never made it out of Moto Two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was a, he was a lovely German Shepherd as well. Yes. Okay, thank you, John T. Now let's catch up with what Katie has got to ask us from Austin, Texas. Hi, guys. This is Katie from Austin, Texas huge fan of the podcast. I wanted to ask about women in motorsport. Simon Patterson recently made mention of the MotoGP fan survey, which showed that 13% of MotoGP fans are female, which is great, but that number is unfortunately low. I don't think that certain helmet incidents are really helping to engage or bring in a higher fan base. So my question is really what can we do to create a safe, fun environment for women to engage, cheer for, root, and have heroes on the grid? We have Anna Carrasco and Maria Herrera, but they are all by themselves out there. And we've seen the likes of women in Formula with the W Series. So I'm really curious if you feel like the introduction of a women's series in MotoGP is a possibility, if it would help engage the female fan base, and where those female racers would come from. Thanks so much again for the podcast. Keep up the great job. Hello, Katie from Austin. Uh, Austin happens to be the, the birthplace of one of my favorite bands ever, so that's kind of cool. Um, to answer your question, yeah, 13% is not great. It's not very good. It's not, not a very encouraging number. And I think ultimately to fix it, rather than me suggest any concrete solution, I'm, what I would suggest is just care. I'm not saying they don't care, but make it more of a priority. Make it an explicit stated aim that you, you're working towards. And then under that umbrella, you can have a look at a W Series type thing. You could have a look at what the F1 side does with the FIA girls on track thing. You know, every year they, I think FIA and Ferrari, they pick out like 10 or 15 uh, female drivers, usually from karting, and they test them, and then they pick out one to fund in Formula 4. And that's a good idea. That's very grassroots. I don't know if it's going to bear long-term fruit, but that's that's the kind of thing you have to do if you care. Uh, ultimately, all of us are desperate to see more female representation on the grid, in the paddock, but also among the fan base. I don't know, you've mentioned the, the helmet incident and you're right, but I think it's more of a more of a consequence than a cause, if that makes any sense. Because it's, it's a consequence of, there's maybe not enough people in the fan base who were that bothered. Because ultimately, if the, if the public pressure was stronger, then there would be no Dennis Rodman helmets on the grid. So it's, and you know, when the female share of the viewership will be bigger, which I desperately hope and really think it will be one day, because I think 
it feels like, I don't have the numbers, but it feels like F1 has sort of gone through that transformation in recent years. It really feels like there are a lot, of, a lot more women watching Formula One right now, which is wonderful. And once that same thing happens for MotoGP, which I desperately hope it will, then those sort of things will start, I won't say taking care of, taking care of themselves, but there'll be things that have to be acted on. So I, I think there's two different things at play here. Um, there's building the female fan base and there's building female representation on track. And I think those two things are linked, but they are separate things. Um, and the evidence for that is that the fact that F1 have built a really successful female fan base without putting a, a woman under the grid to drive yet. Yeah. Um, but I will go a little bit further than Val and say straight up, the powers that be in MotoGP do not care. They, they just don't. Because if they did, they would be taking more concrete action than they already are. Um, I know someone who was speaking to a senior FIM figure a few weeks ago who forgot that there was a woman riding in Moto3. Had completely forgotten that Anna Kraska was there. Uh, I know who the FIM female women in motorsport delegation is, is headed by, and it's not headed by someone who got the job because of their qualifications. It felt very much like a job for mates. Um, and, and within Dorna, there's equally there's equally just a lack of concern because if there was concern, then it wouldn't have taken the media calling out uh, Peko Bagnaya wearing a Dennis Rodman celebratory helmet. It would have happened internally before it even appeared in front of the cameras. Um, I think there needs to be a, a written branch change in the way that we look at women in motorsport. There needs to be real concrete plans put in place to develop the fan base. Like you say, Val, it needs to be made a stated aim because for, for no other reason than from a, a pure, pure business point of view, we're in a, a bit of a crisis at the minute in terms of viewership numbers and audience numbers. And then we discover that only 13% of our fan base is female. Well, adding more to that 13% isn't going to take away male viewers, is it? It's only going to make the sport bigger and stronger. So it should be something that they're working on. Um, regarding getting more women into the sport in terms of competition, uh, it, it you know I wrote a thing a few weeks ago saying that Dorna should be launching a Women's Talent Cup, that there should be something to allow women of a certain sort of age who have come through mini bikes, who have started to show their abilities on track to have a stage to show that they're capable of you know, entering, maybe not directly into Moto3, but going into the Spanish Junior GP Moto3 Championship and probably being competitive if we look at other talent cups. Um, all I can say is we need to keep the pressure on Dorna and we need to keep talking about this if we want to see it happen. I cannot believe that that figure of 13% is actually the real number. I know that's the real number on the survey, but the real number of women who come trackside and watch Grand Prix is not 13%. They are the real fans. Yeah. They pay their money and they travel to a circuit and they enjoy a, a, a Grand Prix weekend. Yes, the, the survey, the numbers in the survey are not accurate. You, you've surveyed when you've got a 15 minute long survey the people that you're surveying are the hardcore fans they're they're not the casual fans so it it, it isn't reflected I, mean, I should say the numbers are accurate they're not fudging yeah. the numbers it's just that there's a selection happening at the start that you have to account for yes yeah exactly exactly there's selection bias yeah so 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 we got to be careful to believe a number like that. We got to be always be very be care be very careful about these survey things. Who could be bothered to fill it out? How long it takes? Almost another discussion. The but let's say okay, let's say if this is a, the hardcore fan base in MotoGP, that's still a problem. Thirteen percent of the hardcores is still not good. We want a fifty percent split among the people who are most dedicated to this sport. Exactly. And I think again, I think F one is sort of getting there at this point. You just you need to peruse Twitter to see how much female engagement there is. You're a hardcore fan, Val. Did you fill it out? Oh yeah. I'm a hardcore fan. I didn't fill it out, but I know that you did, Simon, because Well, I filled it out to read the questions. Which I applaud you for. So so I'm wary about the number of thirteen percent. Uh secondly, um I look at Moto three as Formula 3 if it was on four wheels, okay? We've had Anna Carrasco and Maria Herrera in Moto3 and Maria being victorious in CEV, Spanish Championship as well. Yeah. 
if if that happened on two wheels with a Jamie Chadwick or somebody coming up from from from, from W series, wow. So arguably we're ahead pro rata. We're ahead of of, of where four wheels are. Uh, Again, I want to reiterate, there's a lot of girls I see trackside, particularly in the days of the pomp of Valentino. It's the heartthrob effect, the Marquez heartthrob effect uh, for the for the very younger generation. And I get that. And then they follow through and, and, and such like. So I I strongly believe that the, the number is more. Uh, one number that the Australian Grand Prix Federation did put out this year before Australia Formula One is that they noted that their ticket sales were 40% female and 60% male. And they directly put that down to the Drive to Survive documentary effect. So there you go. Um, isn't there a template there to follow? <laughs> well, yeah, it's not just the doc so much as it's the way F1 social media and discourse has evolved around what the doc sort of was a a forebearer of, for better and for worse. But let's let let me be very clear about it. The fe- increased female participation is for better. Yes. It's absolutely yeah, for yeah, better. Yeah. I am I am super super happy about that. What you said about Maria Herrera, obviously, so there was a season where she finished fourth in the CEV championship, and I think that was a fairly decent CEV grade. Yeah, it I think was. Yeah, it was. Fabio Quartararo yeah. was yeah. there, I believe. And I think Jorge Navarro will have been there yeah. too. Those are two real good guys, and especially Fabio. Um, I think open wheels have also been in that position sometimes over the past few years but not so much recently since the, the ownership changed. We've had a few women in and around what the entry-level series that are now Formula 4, but weren't at that point, and they were showing something, but they never felt the full like financial might of the system or of the, of the resources in play behind their efforts, which, again, there will be people who philosophically argue that they shouldn't be, that it should be full equality of opportunities in, in that particular regard, that you should be fighting your way through a merit and that F1 or MotoGP should not be making extra efforts and make extra funding available to help prioritize women who show something on that ladder. I think Maria Herrera did not, it did not look like she got any special treatment or anything of the sort. It looks like her career has just been fairly moneyless, but it's also... The results haven't also really been there since CEV. I, it's a very interesting case because again, that CEV season was really good. Um, I don't know. I, I would like to see more backing to, to be, it's just, it's important for our sport. And you know, I would like to see when somebody shows something like that in CEV and finishes fourth, wins a couple of races, you have to really properly back him until they prove you, until they either make it or prove it to you without a shadow of doubt that they can't make it. When Maria came as a wild card to Aragon, I think it was 12 or 13, she came to the Thursday afternoon press conference. You couldn't get in the door. And, you know, we, we've, we have an expression, don't I? We've done the difficult bit. Now we've got to do the easy bit. You know, we got it. We got it. We, the system got her through. She had a full-time ride. There's maybe a bit of a gap until the next quick girl comes along. There's not a conveyor belt of quick ladies coming through national championships into international motor three grand prix motor three um but arguably we're when just let's look back seven or eight years and see what we did do and it's not all bad it's not all bad compared with four wheels which have got lots more money and a lot more eyeballs i disagree toby because it's maybe not bad in the context of comparing it to F1, but whenever you compare what we've done to increase female representation in the sport to what we've done to increase Indonesian representation in the sport or British representation in the sport, where we're down our straight up paying for rides for riders, male riders from those countries, it looks pretty bad that they can't do the same thing for a, a fast woman. Yeah, you put it like that. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. You know, we've run the saying. Asian yeah. Talent Cup. We've run the British Talent Cup. We've run all these, the Northern Talent Cup for for North Europe and Germany. All of these series are being funded by Dorna. There's a North American Talent Cup now as well. In the context of that, I think the fact that they couldn't even pay for a ride for Maria Herrera is disappointing. But, and I 
don't know the ins and outs and the results of all of these talent cups over the last half a dozen years, but has there been somebody of Maria's calibre in the other talent cups? Because if they're not there, Dorna can't promote them. Ayagura, Ayumi Sasaki, Scott Ogden. No, no, females. Oh, females. yeah, women. You, no, no, but, but whenever you've got talent cup events where I've been in talent cup paddocks, I've heard fathers tell their kids, make sure you beat the girl. The whole system is geared against them in the lower ranks because there is still so much everyday sexism. There really is. There's so much of it. So take that out of the context and create a women's talent cup and see what happens. Yeah, yeah but I... I well, what is there to lose I from it? I just don't know if there was anybody of Maria's kind of talent, uh, you know, third place, fourth place, winning but, but, races. But it, it doesn't, doesn't matter, Toby. It doesn't matter because you have to start somewhere. Yeah, I agree. Every talent cup has women... Has, has females being selected. Yeah. You know, I think every Town Cup series has a, a, a girl, a young girl who goes for the qualification events. So there is enough of a base out there to create a one-make series across Europe or whatever that is all female. There is enough talent out there. And the only way you're going to make it better is to is to put women in, is to put women into competition and to make them better. You know, I wrote an article about this a few months ago where I said, put Maria Herrera and Anna Carrasco into the series. If they want to. which Put is, them in as the, be- if they want yeah. to, yeah, but put them in as the benchmarks. Yeah. The way that Rory Skinner was put into the British Talent Cup the first year as a benchmark and then used as a measure to select kids like Scott Ogden from. You, you, could, yeah. you could argue... Jamie Chadwick does that exact same role in W Series right now, but that is a yes. conversation for an entirely different podcast, I think. Yeah, yeah it is. It is, yeah. Uh, thank you, Katie, for, for your question. Sorry, it's a very male-centric view of it, but I, I hope it was reasonably insightful. Okay, uh, next up. Hey, guys. Lachlan here from Canberra, Australia. Um, love the podcast. Love listening to you guys ramble on a sport, about a sport that I also love very much. Um feels like I'm listening to a great conversation every time I tune in. Um, quick question about a certain German brand jumping over, the blue and white one that was referenced in the Rider Market podcast recently. Um, is that in a push to get more German riders across, like maybe a Bo, Ben Snyder? I think he's German, but feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Or is that just like a want to expand further out from the, uh, the Japanese and Italian brands? Um, would love to get your thoughts and... Um, Please manifest Remy Gardner in a seat next year. Thanks. Uh, hey, Lachlan. Um, Bowman Snyder is Dutch, so it doesn't quite, doesn't quite fit the bill. There are, no, there are no Germans around on the scene anywhere near really uh, a MotoGP spot. I think the, the ones we've had on the, on the ladder recently will be... And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Philip Erdl and Lucas Tulevich. And, you know, they're fine, but I don't think they'll be insulting anyone unduly by saying that I don't think they were MotoGP potential riders, which is fine. Not everybody is. Um, MotoGP could, you know, could really benefit from a really good Dutch rider, as F1 has shown. The Dutch can get quite passionate about the round. Um, now, in terms of in terms of BMW, uh, I mean, it's, first of all, I'm, it's probably not happening. But if it is happening, uh, they'd have to, like, it'll be a long-term project to get somebody German on the grid. And it's not like BMW has always massively prioritized German talent. You look at World Superbikes right now, what's their lineup? It's uh, Britain, Scott Redding, and Dutchman Michael van der Mark. And when they needed a stand-in, they went in for a Ukrainian uh, Ilya Mikalchuk, I believe. Did yeah, quite good. Yeah, and historically, looking back, they've had Aussies, Brits. They've had Corser. They've had Haslam. They, they've. I don't think ever had a German. No, they had a German. They've had, but they've had a German that they did not go above and beyond to to keep. Marcus Reiterberger, who got. Oh, yeah. Yeah, who got r- r- replaced by Laverty, uh, and who, if if there was an absolute priority to have somebody German in, I don't think Marcus Reiterberger would have would have lost his ride because he wasn't like out of his depth. It's fine. Um, so, no, I don't think, like, I think if BMW does come in, it'll, it'll probably be like a longer term project from the very, 
from like mini bikes or something, but no, there will be no immediate push to get a German on the grid because A, I'm not sure that's how BMW operates and B, nobody around. Unless you give like a German passport to one of the 15,000 excellent Spaniards we have on the on the ladder. The, uh, the actually, the, the, the biggest push that I've seen to bring you cha- German talent to the front comes from who will probably be the last German MotoGP rider for an awful long time looking down the ranks, and that's Stefan Bradle. Uh, Bradle has been running a bit of a mini academy. He's been taking German kids and working with them quite extensively. I know he did a lot of coaching leading up to the Red Bull Rookie Selection event with German kids, with the kids that had been selected. Um, So he's really pushing it, which is cool to see. Um, but apart from Stefan probably making the odd wild card next year in his Honda development role, it looks like there probably won't be another German in the grid. Um, according to Stefan, actually, because I had this conversation with him last weekend, uh, it looks like Marcel Schroeder is on his way out of Moto2 at the end of this season. And there's, there's basically, there's no one else. That's it. So, which, yeah, is pretty grim, actually, for a country that, you know, you associate with having a real motorsport heritage i'm so deeply ashamed of forgetting shutter jesus i that's real bad my apologies i resigned from the role immediately now it's a two-man job finish it up motor gp reporter Val, not motor two reporter you're good yeah it will let you off let you off uh bmw the talk about them going into the big class has been going on for 20 years they ran a three-cylinder with luca cadalora on it in something like about 2001 they had another prototype they've been sponsoring or having the the deal to have the safety car thing they had support races with the boxer cup and then the super cup thing with the four-cylinder k1200rs whatever they were um they get value for money out of their sponsorship of of MotoGP, uh, pole position award. I don't know how much they pay, but it's obviously works for them financially. Um, it's a big step to then go and spend 50, 60, 70 million euros and go and have a factory team. Uh, I don't know how many sports bikes they sell. I certainly know how many t- uh, sports tourers they sell with GSs. And that number is is huge. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how many more they're going to sell if they spend 60, 70 million euros doing Grand Prix and not guaranteed to win. See how the others are doing. So it might be just simple numbers at the moment. Um, the automotive industry, particularly in Germany, has got to work out what they've got to do. They're still suffering post-Dieselgate. Where is electrification going? Is it the final answer? No, it's not. Um, Porsche are flying with their numbers, but that's another discussion. So I can't see them coming in, Lachlan. I can't see them coming in for a while. Um, Just can't see it at all. So uh, uh, regarding Remy Gardner, uh, we'd all love to see him on the MotoGP grid, but uh, can't see it happening, unfortunately, for 2023. What does it sound like now for Remy? What does it sound like? Is it GRT? GRT, Yamaha, World Superbikes, yeah. So, Gerloff, that's it. Worst rides. Yeah, there's there's worst rides. That's a a competitive ride. He can fight for race wins on that. Next up, our final question for this episode. Hey, guys, this is Mark Rabo from Toronto, Canada. I had a question for you about Dorna leadership and their decision-making process behind the scenes. My sense is that they're a very top-down, command-and-control type of organization. And I was wondering if you had the same sense from your perspective. A few things that indicate this to me. One is the cancelling of the MotoGP Unlimited series. An instant cancellation of a series like this versus continuing to iterate and improve and experiment with it is a very top-down type of decision. They also kind of have a pretty tight clamp on what riders can say. All of the content on the website is very kind of regimented and structured. In other words, there's very little experimentation that you're seeing with them. Anyway, hoping uh, to hear your thoughts and if you have any uh, thing to add to that. Hey, Mark, thanks for the question. And yeah, I think you're completely right in suggesting that it is run top-down um, and is quite we say in English, uh, too many cooks. Um, there's a few too many senior figures for me and Dorna, and they all have strong opinions, and that tends to make for a bit of a confused hierarchy where orders are given and expected to be followed. Um, 
there, you know, we, we've talked before about this, um, both in the podcast and in articles I've written about how I think it's time for a bit of a shake up there. And nothing I've seen this season has really changed my opinion on that, um, especially with the way that sprint races in particular, regardless of whether or not you agree or disagree with them, the way that they've essentially been imposed upon the paddock very much reinforces your beliefs about the command structure and the way that orders are given and expected to be followed. Um, I think it's time for a change in leadership, but I'm not going to say too much before getting myself into too much more trouble. Um, I do think like there's one bit of that I really want to pick up and it's in terms of riders being strictly governed on what they say. I don't actually think that's the case compared to my experience of other motorsport series and especially following other sports. Some of the things we've heard MotoGP riders say over the years, I'm not sure they would get away with elsewhere. Um, Again, like the obviously we always bring up the Jack Miller, what Jack Miller has said about the stewards on that one occasion, but also just the seething uh, anger at the stewards that we so often hear where we've not had like a sanction follow for somebody saying something not great about them. Whereas like, for instance, in F1, we've had Sebastian Vettel investigated fairly recently for something he did during the driver briefing. And we've not really had any such open public cases in MotoGP, despite there being clear and obvious dissent. Um, but also, yeah, I don't like they I think they speak their mind fairly. Maybe the one topic they don't really touch upon is Michelin, but I don't think it has to do with Dorna. But otherwise, I don't think there's a lot of big time censorship going on. Maybe Simon has a better idea in that regard. I think any censorship that goes on is self-censorship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to a large extent, but you know, the, the, the whole policy of dealing with criticism from the writers is kind of indicative of both parts of this conversation. Uh, there was a, a rather extraordinary interview with Motociclismo, the Spanish magazine, with Carmelo Espeleta a few weeks ago, uh, where he made all sorts of comments. But one of the comments that really stuck out with me was um, he was talking about, I think, Sergio Garcia, the Moto3 writer, criticizing the Stuarts. Right. And Carmelo Espeleta, the CEO of our sport, said... Essentially, to paraphrase slightly, if a spoilt little kid came to me and said something like this, the way he spoke to the stewards, I'd stick my cigar up his nose. <laughs> and that is both not how you run a sport or how you discipline writers for controversial statements. And it's kind of highlights everything that we've just said. It's not good from anyone. The writers, yeah, I agree, they, they are actually quite outspoken to the journalists you know with what they say there's a bit of swear words what jack miller said in his ducati press debrief the other day was quite kind of free and easy wasn't it it was to the point uh we're a lot less we're a lot freer in a motor gp paddock than an automotive paddock um but likewise you know riders are not going to completely criticize the championship because if it wasn't for the championship they all wouldn't be living in tax havens and having private jets on the way home from a grand prix and they don't want to lose that um never slag off your employer kind of thing isn't it um also you know i i've i i went to a grand prix my first working grand prix was march 1996 i'll tell you this the championship has come on somewhat in those years it was way behind until MotoGP four-stroke turned up at the beginning of 2002. The Valentino effect, four-stroke effect, four effect, you know, Ducati, Kawasaki, all arriving, cigarette money, energy money. The television has come along leaps and bounds compared with other sports, in my view. The, the work that they put in to make the show good, the sellout crowds that we had in the Pompa Valentino, when you've had a high, you're always going to have a low. And at the moment, we might be having a bit of a low. Um, bit, of a, bit of a mess with the documentary Amazon Prime thing. Crying shame. They've got to get themselves out of that. Um, they just will. But also, they are beholden to making money as well because Bridgepoint owned them. And Bridgepoint have owned them for some while. Um, will they sell it one day? Don't think so. 
it's easy to criticise. It is easy to criticise. It's easy to criticise Formula One. Look at what happened at the weekend. But uh, I wouldn't really want to have been in race control at Monza either. So it's it's a fine line. It's a fine line, Mark. Um, it... I worked for them for four years. I've been around them ever since. They, on balance, I think they do it. They do a good job. We're just going through a bit of a difficult one at the moment with not many people turning up to Mugello, not many people turning up to Silverstone, um, and we need a bit of a shake. I actually think uh, that the Valentino era was arguably the worst thing that ever happened to the sport in the long run because it made the people who are in charge rest on their laurels and we're in the where I don't think we're in a dip right now I think this is bigger than a dip and it's because they are you know we, we're in an era where Formula One are selling seats based on George Russell Lando Norris Max Verstappen this new generation of talent whereas we're still trying to sell seats based on Valentino Rossi after he's retired um, MotoGP needs a huge kick up the arse in terms of things like social media strategy and and that's where we're being left behind because it's been comfortable because it's been an easy cruise as long as Valentino's there to make sure that people turn up every weekend um and and that's the that more than anything is the main reason why I think we need a shake up in leadership there is no denying that the Espaleta family in particular have done a great job of building the sport but I don't think they're the right people to move it on the way that uh, Bernie Eccleston wasn't the right person to move on Formula One once it reached a certain point and Liberty Media came in and, and have done a, a transformational job since. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, arguably, what what we need in MotoGP is Jack Miller head-to-head eight points behind Fabio Quattararo as we go into these last six Grand Prix because there'll be a bit of needle between he and Fabio just as there is this was last year at least this huge needle between Verstappen and and Lewis Hamilton that needle promotes people to to tune in and whatever is it all a bit is it all a bit too nice between the riders at the top of the championship is it nothing to do with management but just the character of the riders I, I don't know, man. I don't. I don't think so. I know it's a it's a widespread and maybe it's correct. It's a widespread point of view, but first of all, I don't think F one is suffering this year from having two guys in Verstappen and Leclerc out front. Well, Leclerc has lost a lot of points, so he's not like a clear title contender. And anyway, the title race is over, but they seem to get on fine. And there's, I don't think F one has particularly been hurting that. And I. World Superbikes is going good, but it's not like it's become the biggest thing ever in history now that Johnny Ray has hit off Alvaro Bautista this past uh, this past weekend. Uh, and the personalities are fine. I don't, don't think there's anything wrong with Aleix or Pecco or, or Fabio. Fabio could absolutely... I think he already does have a pretty massive fan base, and I think that'll only grow. Um, I don't know. It's a... It's tough to say because sometimes it's not oh, it's not about the nature. It's just just about how it's it's not even about how it's presented. Maybe it's just about the the circumstances surrounding it. I don't think the title fight is like letting anybody down in any in any meaningful sense. But I don't know. I I think we have the characters and we have the storyline. We're just struggling to sell it to people who aren't already invested. That's the fundamental problem. Yeah more than anything and that's why the documentary was so important that's why changing how they do social media is so important because that's the that's where we're feeling now as a sport as a collective but i i do feel it is easier said than done because oh, yeah of course, of especially course. from from our perspective like we're all super invested in those guys yeah yeah i don't think i have an easy answer for how to make the rest of the world if you like care yes. about them but I don't think the way to do it is to try and do what F1 did with a slightly smaller budget. A la sprint Probably. races and TV documentaries. And, yeah. you know. and what we must remember is that the automotive world has just got more money. Fact, simple. It's just a bigger animal. So, you know, we're never going to be that, that huge animal in the jungle, but we could be this very agile, smaller tiger instead. So... We've got to be careful not to compare apples with apples because 
you know the, the the money that's there and Audi coming into Formula One, the Red Bull money. I mean, holy smoke, it's huge. So uh, yeah, we got to be careful. But hey, personally, I for one, I've enjoyed all my time involved in the paddock. It's been twenty six years. I haven't been to every race, but I've been to three hundred and something of them. And um, yeah, it's. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful thing to be part of, and uh, everything will come full circle. Thank you for your questions. Continue to send them in to podcasts at the dash race.com. That's the email to uh, to get them into us. We've now got six Grand Prix to go. Aragon. Then we go to Asia with Mategi, Thailand. A bit of a break. Then Philip Island, Sepang. Back to Europe for the finale in Valencia. I've got a hunch that this championship is going to go down to the Valencian Grand Prix. Keep in touch with everything on our website, the dash race.com, for Formula One Mudder GP news. News and check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash we are the race. In the meantime, from Val, Simon, and myself, Toby, catch up with you after Aragon. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.